0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Anna Fischzahn, and today it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Lawrence Rickles about his brand new book, The Psycho Records, uh, wall, uh, Wallflower Press, which I think is an imprint of uh, Columbia University Press, you can go to their mm-hmm. website, <laughs> um, from 2016. So, uh, Larry, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: It's great to have you on. Um, I'd like first uh, to briefly introduce you. Uh, Lawrence Rickles is a legendary film media and literary theorist. He's professor in art and theory at the Academy of Fine Arts, Karlsruhe. He is the author of many other books, uh, Aberrations of Mourning from 1988, The Vampire Lectures, 1999, The Case of California, 2001, Nazi Psychoanalysis 2002, The Devil Notebooks 2008, Ulrika Ottinger The Autobiography of Art Cinema from 2008, I Think I Am Philip K Dick 2010, and Germany a Science Fiction <laughs> 2015. So um uh just to say even, you know, more about your maybe some more biographical information uh after completing uh his PhD in German literature and German studies at Princeton in 1980. I said the year I wasn't going to, but Larry decided to pursue a master's degree in clinical psychology at Antioch University, Santa Barbara, completing that in 1994. Um, then he, comp- uh, he completed his residency in psychotherapy, also in Santa Barbara from uh, 1990 until 2011 uh, you taught at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where um, uh, you were a professor of comparative literature in German and also uh, taught in the art department and film and media studies. Finally, um, as is evident, I think, from even a cursory reading of of uh, Larry's work, uh, he's very influenced by Freud, uh, Winnicott and Klein and uh, weaves masterful kind of readings of these authors and their insights into analyses of uh, slasher, splatter, and other horror films throughout the book we'll be discussing today. So, um, Larry, maybe you can begin by telling us a bit about the prehistory of the book, uh, so to speak. How did you develop an interest in, on the one hand, horror films, and on the other hand, psychoanalysis? And uh, did these interests emerge simultaneously?
1: My interest in psychoanalysis is older than um, some of these pop cultural pursuits that I picked up when I moved to California and started teaching there. Um, At some point in adolescence, uh, I was uh, uh, curious about problems of mourning, and um, at least back then I soon discovered that really only Freud um, spoke about this problem in any depth. So um, I became uh, kind of a Freudian and then caught up mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. that passing um, investment mm-hmm. over the years. Um, so when I moved to uh, California, I had to figure out a way to combine my interest in psychoanalysis <clears throat> with um, the interest, that the students uh, brought to class. Um, I'm not so. Um, I'm not such a strategist that I, you know, came up with the best combination right away. <laughs> <It> was really <laughs> just trying to survive. But then I, but then I inherited this class. I, uh, film studies in those days was a kind of colony of literary departments, mm. and so I had I had pretty easy access to teaching there. And um, one day I inherited the horror class, the horror film class. And I had noted for some time as I was trying to um, check out my environment that um, slasher films were very big. I think um, uh, Friday the 13th, too, was playing at the local theater and uh, I was intrigued and I looked at it and... That was when I decided that I would make the horror film class be about the um, slasher films that were current back then in the 80s.
0: Mm. Were the Um, the students surprised to to get Freud in the bargain? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it took Mm. a long time for that. I mean, you know, in dog years, it took a long time for that (laughs) to go down. It Mm. really wasn't until um, I found a connection to a cult horror with um, the vampire which was then a separate class that I finally conquered um, the student body
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and there's something more upbeat and compelling I guess about talking about vampirism in terms of mourning
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: along the lines of um, Freud's discussion of ghosts and totem and taboo mm-hmm. than you know um, running up against the psychopathic violence and in slasher and splatter movies. There's only, at that point, there was seemed to be only so much I could say <laughs> about it. But then the English School of Psychoanalysis, which actually comes somewhat later in my um, development,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, I've really been closely reading Winnicott and Klein for under 10 years. Um, hmm. It's the English School of Psychoanalysis that brought me... Um, uh, to a point of breakthrough in the legibility of psycho horror. And that's what um, encouraged me to go back to this book. That's at least as old as the vampire lectures in terms of it's being based on transcripts of tape recordings of my lectures in the undergraduate class. Um, so I went back finally just a few years ago to this, um, uh, this old project and, was able to update it finally and put it to rest I hope
0: So psycho records is this project it's it's your it's your lectures essentially
1: Yeah yeah it's, yes yeah that's how it began I mean it's changed considerably mm. Um as I mentioned also through the intervention of the English school
0: Yeah there's quite a bit of um, And then yeah. Uh-huh.
1: yeah no I I owe a lot to him and um you know, I, I think I also mentioned in the book that for a long time I thought whatever I had to say, I had kind of ironically already included in the sidelines of the case of California. So um, <laughs> I didn't really feel that I, I needed even to return to it. But then later on I had um, uh, approached the topic of psychopathy in Germany as science fiction. Hmm. Um, and and used Winnicott and Klein then, but especially Winnicott, to um, uh, in terms of uh, um, a a certain science fiction plotting in um, uh, American science fiction that keeps on uh, returning to the issue of uh, psychopathic violence in other words, the opposite of empathy in post-war worlds. And I started reading that as the itinerant of Germany after World War II.
0: Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. We're having a little so, bit of So um, after hold- that. Yeah, hold on. Hello? Okay. Okay. All right. Yes? Go ahead. Keep going. You were you were in and out just for a second, but please keep going.
1: Okay. No- um, I was just um, saying that what made it re- what made the psycho records finally really possible was the work I did in Germany as science fiction, talking about the more historical problem of the integration of Germany after World War II, um, mm-hmm. which I did through tracking um, figurations of empathy and psychopathy in post-war worlds in the um, projected future um, in American science fiction.
0: Mm. yes one of the things go ahead i'm sorry
1: no go on i'm sorry
0: no i just remembered your i I love what you said about uh it's really it really comes out of winnicott and his writings about adolescence and delinquency after the Mm -hmm. second world war where you say that you know some of this literature really makes one realize that we all have a brush with psychopathy as teenagers and so we can uh, maybe uh, i it creates this kind of viewing experience of psychopaths because uh there are potential doubles it's like the the life not led or so as you put it right uh, absolutely there but for the grace of the good object go i you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that was very i hadn't thought about it that way before let's put it this way
1: (laughs) yeah so i i developed um Winnicott's insistence that adolescence is that which we grow out of into the notion that adolescence also serves as a kind of inoculation
0: mm. over and against
1: psychopathic violence.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, let, let's talk about uh, a little bit since you've brought up world war two and, and how this changed our, um, uh, you know, uh, Hitchcock's uh, psycho for a minute. Let's focus on that. because mm-hmm. You talk you call um, and what you call the psycho effect so here we have like the theme of, you know, mother son merger with Norman Bates, of course, uh, sh- kind of straddling psychosis and psychopathy or, or may- maybe I misunderstood that. But I, I thought no, that's int-
1: absolutely that's absolutely correct, um, because the, the word psycho is so enigmatic. I mean, mm-hmm. is the psycho a psychotic or does it um, address the psychopathic violence? That's obviously rampant in the genre. And I argue that um, psychopathy remains the big unknown. Um, I would also probably, with, this, with the exception of Winnicott, it's really the um, failure of interpretation in psychoanalysis, the <laughs> limit of psychoanalytic hermeneutics. Um, and in mass culture or popular culture, we see that psychosis, which, um, may not be all that treatable, but is certainly um, uh, legible um, uh, after um, Freud's Schreiber case study. Um, that um, uh, the pop the audience popularly also had this sense of psychosis that through the admixture of psychosis into the um, enigmatic problem of psychopathic violence, uh, a kind of um, hold was granted the audience. One was able to understand um, the mother problem, for Mm -hmm. example, or the melancholic retention span, um, which allowed the audience to get past um, the sort of Ed Gein (laughs)
0: Mm.
1: uh, violence um, that was otherwise pressing forward in this new genre.
0: So you would even say it enabled a... An empathy toward Norman
1: yes yes something like that I would
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A yeah
1: curious I mean, new kind of empathy <laughs> <you know.
0: laughs> well it is interesting there is a fascination with psycho uh, psychopaths serial killers now uh, there's a it seems that um, with Dexter and all of these kinds of Dexter, is, is that that's over though right i'm I'm very behind I, it in my <laughs>
1: yeah no i don't know why <laughs> but it was it it was at the same time as true blood which is interesting
0: yeah well, well okay i want to i do want to get to that but uh, just to stick uh to yeah. psycho for just a little while longer so there's the yeah. also you discussed the shower scene of course uh which becomes a sort of defining um defining moment and point of reference actually for future horror films and then yeah. maybe even sort of previous ones, apre coup you know it's like.
1: right that's what i i um that's how this project developed. There was a point when I um decided that the force of the psycho effect which by which I mean the impact of the shower scene mm. was such that it it um also claimed um by its recoil earlier uh horror films as mm. rehearsals of the effect um So, yes, what I call the psycho effect, this is not really another reading of Hitchcock's Psycho. I mean, there is a reading in the book, but it's not uh, the foundation. It's rather how a a single um, scene could um, uh, prove traumatic and influential, um, and yet also um, pose the prospect of a working through uh, in the course of several decades. Because Hmm. it did arguably vanish
0: Uh
1: or was displaced so considerably that it's hard to um, uh, see the continuity. And in the last chapter, I argued that uh, psychopath violence hits the screen again, but no longer under secular conditions, but via um, multiple references to the devil and um, the infernal aegis of evil. Uh, Which is a different, a different treatment.
0: Hmm. Do Do you connect any of this uh, these thematics to um, a kind of post World War II uh, trauma or or um, attempts to mourn? Because you, I mean, yeah. I mean, is there is there a particular uh, are there particular affects or 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 narratives that these uh, the shower scene enables? Because you do talk about how in horror, the horror in horror was used to be prior to the war uh natural disasters or that was more common and then it became the horror became more about like psychopathy or or psychosis
1: right now there's a direct connection to world War two something I don't go into in the book um but I can just mention it in passing it's hard to um to know a whole lot about um Hitchcock's work on the concentration camp documentary Mm. after World War II. I think Wilder inherited it, if it was the same movie, in fact. But he, in fact, um, did spend some time editing the material and contributing to that documentary. So there's that connection, but there's also the connection within his own oeuvre between a film like Rope, which um, um, is the as a strange reversal of what he achieved in the um, shower scene, Um, the absolute absence of editing cuts um, Hmm. in the long one or two takes of that film, Um, which is then reversed, but also preserved in the um, tour de force editing of the shower scene. But I also, um, what I do underscore in the book is that Hitchcock came from um, an apprenticeship to German cinema um, before the war, um, where the themes of doubling and horror and even serial killing uh were already prevalent, such that Siegfried Krakauer, you know, writes in his book about these German expressionist films in some sense being connected in advance via a kind of teletype um, with the political um, uh events that followed in Germany so he um he was trained there in this um school of cinema and um uh, knew german um at least enough that he could uh, speak to his wife in German when the daughter wasn't supposed to understand <laughs> and um he um he must have known that the shower scene which he sometimes um um whimsically refers to as the bathtub scene, (laughs) (laughs) that the shower scene does reverberate with the German word and tradition of shower, which of course is horror, Mm, mm -hmm. Gothic horror, for example. Um, So yes, he he, um, built all of that um, prehistory and momentum I think into that scene, a scene that was inspired by the book that was the fictionalization of the Ed Gein um, atrocities uh, in the Midwest.
0: Can you just say two words about uh, Ed Gein? Because I don't know if our audience, if everybody knows the reference.
1: Right, right. He's one of the, um, I mean, he's obviously not the first, but one of the, certainly the most, the first really famous case of um, um, psychopathic violence to um, hit the headlines after World War mm. II, and um, getting back actually to the film that uh, Hitchcock contributed to, but which um, uh, was completed um, uh, by other directors. Um, but in that film, I don't know if you ever saw that early documentary, That there's a certain emphasis on Ilza Koch, mm. who was one of the... Um, uh, common dance to whom uh, the making of um, a human uh, lampshades was attributed. Mm. But anyway, the, um, Ed Gein was a close reader of, of sensational accounts of her atrocities and um, was applying um, that um, uh, information down to details in his macabre um, um uh, work with corpses. Huh. Um, he, in fact, became a, a a murderer later in his spree. But what he essentially did after his mother's death was to redecorate his home with corpse parts that he dug up in the cemetery.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and that gives us that taxidermy theme that keeps on recurring yes. in the in the um, in the genre.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's
1: like in silence of the limbs. I mean. You know,
0: Mm hmm. So, do you think that there's a, at least in the immediate year, in the years, you know, post, post World War II, that these, that, the, you know, treating these themes was a way of trying to understand or get some insight or just maybe even work through some of the, um, the Nazi violence or, or just the fact that people kind of participated, uh, or at least let, let it happen, you know? Civilism. I don't think
1: um I mean again I think there's a closer um mm. uh link between uh, the science fiction themes I pursued in the book in the the book that uh, appeared earlier mm-hmm. um and um the um political and historical details of um post World War 2 World War 2 and post World War 2 but I do think um that it brings into focus as you um mentioned the the proximity to psychopathic violence um that um the psycho is our potential double and that it's a violence we have to deal with on various at various levels mm. and mm. some of those levels however you know we, p- individual well, movie goer would probably be hard pressed to link those levels or themes back to world war two. It doesn't stop us from doing that, but, um, I'd say some of the themes, for example, would be, um, how does, uh, the survivor relate to, um, uh, the murderer, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, the, the issue of survival is pressing because Marion precisely doesn't survive. Um, and so the, uh, um, the genre, the subgenre, um just for the sake of innovation, had to begin nominating survivors. Um, but what is the relationship of the survivor to the violence? Like in the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the verdict is one remains chained to what one saw. Uh, only in Halloween, I argue, that you begin to see um, survival... Um, separated out from an, an equation with, with killing the killer, um, so that survival in its own right um, is something that can be affirmed, <laughs> um, and not simply um, you know, within a, a grim dialectic with the crime itself. Um, so I'm just saying that different aspects of um, living on after uh, the uh, the the traumatic event. Or- but in split-off ways, um, mm-hmm. as isolated themes, that mm-hmm. um, we or try to integrate, but uh, an obvious um, reflection.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. Be- before we talk more about the content of the book, I, I actually want to ask you a question about the writing, uh, because. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's interesting that these were lectures. So I guess that adds another dimension here. But I, I you know, I found your style uh, quite, quite remarkable, actually. And uh, it's very, it's very dense. And just for, for our audience out there, um, and poetic. And there's a lot of uh, wordplay and punning and, you know, metaphor. And I mean, every sentence feels like a paragraph It's that it's so rich. So I'm just curious <laughs> if you've always written that the, this way or does it come easily to you? Is this something that you work on or just sort of happens?
1: I would I mean, wordplay that's, you know, that's the, my literary bent, I guess, but <laughs> the kind of condensed version um, that you're referring to comes out of my book, the case of California. Mm. And there for the first time I, um, I really, uh, Uh, set myself the experiment of bringing together or juxtaposing um, sort of Germanic theorizing like Adorno's philosophy and the teen idiom of California so I think the psycho records is still within that um, tradition I mean (laughs) that's what it owes to being on location it tries to bring adolescent group psychologies into the Fold of psychoanalytic um, theorization.
0: Mm. So you're you're playing with their language too, or something? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm this... trying
1: to, trying to. Uh-huh.
0: I'm just so unfamiliar with their language, apparently, that I didn't notice.
1: Well, <laughs> well, some of the some of the language is even part of horror films, uh, um, right? Yeah. Um, uh, both occult and secular horror there's the tradition of the so called groaner have you heard about that no. in other words some of my puns are really really bad like the ones about <laughs> um dad and dad that would be considered a groaner okay, <laughs> okay i think but i but, but i don't mind i don't mind risking the occasional groaner plus that's recognizable too
0: <laughs> um
1: not that my audience can, is comprised of adolescents, but probably they all did spend time in adolescence
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, okay, I see, I see some now it's becoming clearer, so um okay, uh another question um you you discuss uh yeah, you discuss a lot of these like slasher, splatter, I think I'm getting the picture about what's the differences between slasher and splatter i think I guess splatter is just more it's just gorier. Is gory or a word? It's more gory, <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: no, it is, mm-hmm. and um, I guess that's enough. Okay. I mean, it's the one that begins to border on cannibalism, for example. So right. it opens up the whole feast of violence.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you 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 discuss these films from the '70s and '80s, and there are certain themes that really uh, emerge or that you highlight. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna maybe um, kind of bring some of these themes out and maybe you can talk about them and why they're important or the function that they serve uh, both, uh, you know, diegetically and maybe, I don't know, just maybe link it to something sociocultural out there. So masks is, um, masks are, are a big theme. Uh, It's it and tied norm. I think you've, you've tied masks to uh, shame and guilt. Substitution Uh is another one. Survival, you've mentioned, but also the couple and the community or the couple versus the, com- you know, as, as mm-hmm. separating from the community, uh, mourning, inability to mourn trauma. And, f- and also, um, a big one is, uh, separation and, and the cut or, you know, one can, one can say from parental control, but not necessarily just the kind of maybe, uh, individuation as well. So it's very much part of this teen splatter genre, it seems, um, mm-hmm. which I think, in some sometimes really quite explicitly uh is a negotiation of this separation or at least this is like a subtheme in in a lot of these films it
1: depend depending where one um um enters mm. the uh the genre or subgenre so like around Halloween and Friday the 13th. I'm
0: thinking of my childhood. Yeah, yeah, okay, you're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> then that, that's what I know, right, those <laughs> Halloween. But
1: there but there you have to imagine the kids in the movie theater mm. because they went there like going to a kind of group therapy session. I mean, they were <laughs> doing together in the theater what what later um a, perhaps smaller group wrapped around the TV or VCR began to do at home or could do at home, which is something that Scream picks up on. Um, much of that film is organized around the, the in-group viewing of Halloween mm. that's playing on the VCR. So um, what's being negotiated there is um, the tension between the group and the couple, um, because in those films, especially Friday the thirteenth, um what the group what one what is discussed in the group therapy is what are the um triggers for the violence. So um, a certain kind of um activity is not allowed. Which doesn't mean that one one learns taboos in watching Friday the thirteenth, but one um identifies um uh uh the hot spots of the interaction um with the parental couple um as i tried to argue the group <clears throat> is caught between two couples the parental couple that's um considered out of it anyway not just off limits but out of it <laughs> and then the future couple um that they will more or less inevitably form um uh against um the the group bond um, inevitably, if only because the group has no reproducing plans of its own. Um, so until technology helps out, usually, mm-hmm. um, some kind of pairing of hers, um, to continue with the story. Um, but the, the group that one imagines watching Friday the 13th is that group between the two couples, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. um, reading, um, reading between the lines of those two um, couple imperatives.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, and it's different, And I think, with um, psycho there, of course, the um, separation individuation um, is tracked back more classically um, to the separation or non-separation from the mother.
0: Right, yeah.
1: and, And earlier engagement or disengagement. So um, maybe what you see in the course of this subgenre is that the audience um, gradually gets a little older and a little older (laughs) (laughs) until in Scream they're really um, 20 to maybe even early 30-year-olds remembering their adolescence. Hmm. Um, So we reach that point that Winnicott talks about that what's so great about adolescence for all its turbulence is that, you know, its ends. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's, it's finitude is what's best about it <laughs> okay um gotcha so what about uh yeah what do we make of this um mourning or inability to mourn because one of the things that i um maybe i'm wrong about this but it feels to me that zombie films for example and the theme of the undead I mean I guess we have that earlier but this this zombie uh in the form of the zombie the undead in the form of the zombie is uh becomes popular again or if it ever or just becomes popular for the first time perhaps in the 90s or or, or 2000s it feels like this it really bloomed this this subgenre in the Right. Or am I am I off a little bit on the, my decade? I, they're all the same. They're all blurred together. What, <laughs> was it the early two thousands? Was it the? <laughs> it was. It
1: was more. It was more of a sporadic thing. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, with Romero, for example. But then at one point, it absolutely dominated um, the cinema, largely because it was looping through those video games. Hmm. um that uh, benefited from what is fundamental to zombie entertainment, namely that you uh have a kind of thrill a kill relationship to um destroying the dead hmm. so um uh within the context of that game, I think the the thrill factor um was always very strong. What's surprising is that um rather late um in film history. Uh, zombieism dominated the screen so completely. And I argue something that's obvious that it has something to do with
0: 9-11,
1: mm-hmm. um, which was um, interrupted then by uh, Obama's um, election, which is mm-hmm. when, I argue, um, vampirism returns. It becomes possible to identify with the undead, um, to have a more complicated relationship to mourning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, not just this, um, you know, hunting of zombies—the hunting of the um, once dead and making them twice dead, once and for all.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that when True um, Blood? That was the first season true, of True yeah, Blood. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. all uh, True Blood and um,
0: Buffy. Oh, no, that was earlier.
1: No, that's earlier. Yes, yeah, but um, uh, Twilight.
0: Oh, twi- Twilight, Twilight.
1: <laughs> they all—they're they, all pretty much from from that same uh, period that um, um, uh, led to an alternation then between zombie um, pictures and and vampire fictions. But not just an alternation, it was kind of a, a shake-up of the horror genre in general, which is probably how Dexter mm. um, happened. It also re-released the questions of um, uh, psycho-violence um, that that TV show... <laughs> um then addressed
0: <clears throat> you know you you talk about uh you link well you you talk about race throughout here and there but uh can you say something about the way that true blood dealt with race i mean i've heard i have some friends who are you know film theorists film scholars and they talk about uh how you know true blood was so queer i mean maybe you can say something about that too but um they talk they actually speak less about race so i'd I like to hear your your thoughts on that. To well, the degree that these, <clears throat> these vampires are a like kind of microcosm, social microcosm, or microcosm of the nation, rather. Maybe.
1: Um, it's certainly um, the utopian um, mm. and even literal-minded projection of integration. Mm-hmm. So um, if you <laughs> look at uh, True Blood, uh, once the vampires are introduced as real, um as possible neighbors all kinds of um fictional figures want to be included and not just the usual occult sidekicks like werewolves but also maynads, all sorts of fantasy figures um uh shapeshifters anyway from different genres <laughs> is my mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. so that what um what was so um yeah again turbulent about um true blood was the absolute blending and inclusion of um, not just social stereotypes, but even the figures of, um, even the fictional figures hailing from genre that were considered almost opposed in the past. (laughs) I mean, you never mixed up vampirism and fantasy really before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, that's what's striking there, I think the reason people um, remember the gay theme as, um, as uh, subsuming other themes is that one of the lead um, African-American characters was also gay and ran some kind of club where all sorts of um, minority vampire interests mm. <laughs> crossed over, met and crossed over. Mm-hmm. But um, True Blood does continue Um, what would otherwise be identifiable as a political integration, um, which began really with the Blade films. I mean, to my mind, that's really the first uh, vampire franchise um, that put an African-American body in the foreground. Um, That was also one of the first uh, vampire films to uh, look at vampires as fully... Um, sexual, um, genitally-centered <laughs> um, bodies. Whereas before, um, uh, vampires were um, relegated to a kind of perversion and at best uh, could be redeemed by psychoanalytic readers who insisted that all of that was a displacement away from genital sexuality that was being somehow disguised.
0: Uh, uh-huh, uh mm-hmm
1: but um everything changes then when when um in true blood for instance um the vampires start having regular genital sex and the um the biting um is some kind of um foreplay and not really <laughs> um you know a, a a a vital investment um and one thing that happens is that all those themes that were um uh included in the condensation of the uh, vampire image are now um, separate issues like the issues in society perhaps to be addressed and redressed um, so um, perversion is no longer something um, innate in um, vampiric sexuality in other words in sexuality mm-hmm. but it's now a separate um, group somehow um, that can be accepted and in that sense both integrated and kept at a certain distance <laughs> so always when the norm becomes more um, inclusive um, and extends further one has to be a little wary of what's what edge or margin is being lost um, and um, I think what was in danger of being lost, I don't want to say that it was lost, is um a kind of uh intrapsychic um um corner on um the margin, on uh, marginal experience, and ultimately on ambivalence that um vampirism had represented and carried forward until some turning point when um it was decided that um they would be uh, integrated as sexual bodies.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That. You know. It also makes me think politically about uh, queer politics and the shift towards uh, gay marriage and queer adoption and you know this kind of attempt to integrate you know certain kinds of queers maybe uh, white or or at least um, you know people willing to have quote families you know um, this kind of within within this idea of citizen representative citizenship or the family so in a way absolutely I can, yeah i true blood is that's kind explicitly of symptomatic.
1: thematized mm. yeah it's not only symptomatic it's explicitly thematized in the first year i only watched the okay. first year because that was our forum assignment okay a confession i have
0: never watched it so so <laughs> okay obvious. there you go i, I think the i have some kind of <laughs> that it's actually the most <laughs> it's like front and center of all right. anyway, all right, well,
1: but in the said. first year, that becomes a theme. There are certain vampires that that um mm. uh, live outside of um society, and they are gay vampires, I think, mm-hmm. and they um. Uh, they won't be integrated, and so and they are kind of condemned to um ostracism <laughs> double uh-huh. death by all parties, uh-huh. so i mean yeah the to be integrated a sexually um Uh, Genitally centered, regular sex.
0: Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) No
1: no perversion. It's okay to know perverts that are couplified next door. (laughs) And so on and so forth. It just creates a whole, a whole new map Mm -hmm. for, um, for including vampirism or whatever we can call it
0: now (laughs) okay Uh, so let's let's move on from vampires to serial killers or and their vicissitudes (laughs) because uh um you know i i i was really struck by what you said actually not not so much about well i was thinking about serial killers or, or or these psychopathic killers and motives and you know what if you could chart a little bit you know how they changed if they changed but Also related to that, uh, I, it was your discussion of, um, you know, like these crime shows that have appeared, like CSI, Las Vegas, or whatnot, and, and comparing them to Columbo, for example, you know, which is, he's so quaint, but Columbo, you point out, was this, um, you know, he was part psychoanalyst. He'd actually talked oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. and talked to people and figured, you know, interpreted and <laughs> mm. analyzed and, and these CSI guys are just I don't know what they are. They're like forensics experts who they just they just have this belief in science and um everything is about anatomy and dissection and uh but not right. But anyway, not this not not nothing here is like about affect or psyche, or maybe there is something, well, and I'm
1: just well, what gets displaced um i mean the the um what shall I say the unconscious um aspect so crucial to Colombo's understanding of crime gets displaced to problems the team uh, members are having in their own lives, so suddenly, if there's mm. a show about um oh, uh-huh. you know child abuse or whatever. Then you've in in little scenes in CSI, you find out that the different women have been having problems with the custody of their child or mm. whatever. It just goes around the block. <laughs>
0: so in a way, it's, it's more uh, privatized. But uh, yeah, it's so interesting. So why, yeah, you know, why does this happen? Do you have a a kind of theory about it?
1: <sighs> well. um it's certainly a uh, reformatting of the relationship to crime. I mean, with, with Colombo mm-hmm. is a late arrival of the master sleuth, mm-hmm. um, the analy- analyst who deals with crime one-on-one, <laughs> um, more or less. So you have a, a group formatting um, of um, Crime Solution in CSI, which is accompanied, importantly, by a new trust in... Um, Verifiable scientific data right
0: um,
1: and I link that in my final chapter, for better or worse, to the um, uh, establishment of uh, DNA um, evidence, <laughs> uh, which um, you know began through the testing for paternity. So uh, the first um, famous case of um, DNA testing. Uh, used to identify a criminal was a case in which uh a father was also identified as the um incestuous abuser of his daughter in all in one movement so for me it's an important um dis dislodgement of the father as the figure of um abstraction ambiguity mm-hmm. adoption what have you um because the one thing that is verifiable now is paternity. Hmm. I think. It, I think a side effect of DNA testing is even that maternity turns out to be less uh, <laughs> certain in terms of testing, which would explain of- the group. Which would explain explain the group formatting. I think because uh-huh. I think the group is always a syndication of the maternal bond. Mm. <laughs> so that's. That's a quick attempt at interpretation.
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, and and the other the other development again. I don't know if this is something that was always there, but just it gets more highlighted, or I've just started to notice that the uh the, sl- uh, the slasher splatter films this genre they, it 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 seems to veer off, or I don't know if that's veering off is the right increasing. It increasingly is employing these comedic kind of effects. Um, mm-hmm. not, not the CSI, uh, you know, shows, but, but like, um, yeah, specifically this, this kind of horror, uh, film, this like splatter slasher films. So what is it? Did it always, what, what is the function? Like, how do how do these comedic effects actually function within these films or, and some of it, some of them are, are quite campy and I don't know if it's just a sort of motive campus of reading. I'm reading it as campy, but it's not meant to be campy. I think it is though. I think that there's a reflexivity. Um
1: which to, films are you thinking about?
0: oh, I don't you know the films <laughs> I, I think it's more like the eighty you know even i is Blair would you consider blair which is not comedic but it's but it's it's no, reflex, but you know, i, would say,
1: I say the half life of of horror mm. um tends to be comedy mm. so i am um, already in the theater of conviggnole <laughs> in paris where they since the late nineteenth century they had these um horror skits um they just um, uh, went ahead with it and alternated horror skits with comedy skits because uh, inevitably, because of the um, reliance on special effects in horror, as soon as that gets, proves it all outdated, it becomes laughable. So the the nightmare on Elm Street films very quickly became either laughable or tiresome, even though in real time, people rushed to see those films for the special effects. So I think, again, anything that relies on um, uh, the reality effect of a special effect, Mm -hmm. special reality effects, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, is going to lose the race against um, innovation and become outdated and laughable. Mm. So um, I I know lots of vampire films that were camp, um, but I don't know a great many. I mean, there must be a few, but there must be very few (laughs) horror films that were deliberately camp from the start. (laughs) But they quickly fall back into that position, though. I see. Yeah, I I guess I was thinking about the
0: Friday the 13th, you know, these... By the time you get to like whatever the third or fourth, they just seem, but maybe that's my, that's just a mode of reading or like you said, that they become dated or they be, they acquire that over time.
1: Um. Yeah, I think they quickly um, get used up or quickly exhausted. I think when, for the first viewing, you know, the, the group therapy that attended them took them very seriously. Mm. I mean, in one of the Friday the 13th films, I write about it in the book, was it the fourth one, when the little boy is the protagonist, who, hmm. whose hobby is making masks, and he um, it looks anyway like he succeeds in killing Jason? The uh, apparently, according to something I read, a New York audience, on the seeing the film for the first time, got up and hugged and <laughs> oh God. And, and screamed with jubilation. I mean, um, but the price for that kind of um, real time. Um, synchronicity, as it were, is that it becomes dated and laughable very, very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so, oh, you know, we've, we're almost out of time, but um, I was wondering if, uh, if you were, if you're working on anything now or what the next, if there's a next project or, or a current project that you'd like to tell us about.
1: Um, well, that's always a problem with talking about a, a recently published book is that I'm already in the next one.
0: Well, that's great. <laughs> and I've, Tell done, us. I've done, I've I done
1: everything I could not to talk about uh, <laughs> fantasy, but fantasy is my new project, oh. um, the, both the genre, but also um, its um, um, reliance on wish fantasy or daydreaming, hmm. which um, I, I try to link to. Um, new digital mediation um, in an effort to answer the question why fantasy is the most popular genre and why it um, uh, prevails whenever it is mixed into any other genre. I would say the mixing of bi-genre, anyway, is the law right now. But fantasy always um, dominates. And I think that's because um, it has a certain... um, uh, proximity to the wish fantasy um nature of the digital relation.
0: Mm, that's so okay. that's
1: what I'm working on right now.
0: Oh sounds great. Sounds really juicy. I'm, I'm on, <laughs> I can't wait. So uh, you talk <laughs> about fantasy with, you know, a PH fantasy or
1: that's fantasy. the Kleinian view. Um yeah. I, just to keep it simple, I'll I'll probably um keep it uh F fantasy. But yeah <laughs> okay. I'm aware of the <laughs> <The Okay. distinctions. laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
0: just wondering which if you were going to go there but um okay
1: i will refer to i will refer to the distinctions but um mm. i mean the, the genre um calls itself fantasy with an f so i might as well follow suit mm-hmm. um Tolkien, you know try came up with the name for the genre because he didn't want it to um be a uh, for children only, that's why he tried to move oh. away from the fairy story or fairy tale. Um, but as a result, um, as you can read in his essay on the fairy story, he has to rush into a, a hyper-Christian reading of the fantasy genre to get a, 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 uh, away from the proximity to wish fantasy that he names with his naming of the genre. Mm. Um, he says that the reason fantasy genre is the fantasy genre is powerful, and the the way it works is that there is one fantasy that is true, namely the Christian redemption. Hmm. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> which you know is is wonderful because the the only fantasy I know that is true is the digital relationship,
0: <laughs> <Right>. which is <laughs> which is why
1: which is why fantasy is so um, so potent right now.
0: Oh, okay. Well, on, on that note, um, okay, thanks. We should wrap up. But uh, we've, been, we've been talking to Larry Rickles about uh, his uh, brilliant new book, The Psycho Records. Larry, uh, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me on it.
0: And, and thanks to our audience for listening. Till next time.